Lecture six of the Analysis of the Mind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. The Analysis of the Mind by Bertrand Russell. Lecture six. Introspection. One of the main purposes of these lectures is to give grounds for the belief that the distinction between mind and matter is not so fundamental as is commonly supposed. In the preceding lecture I dealt in outline with the physical side of the problem. I attempted to show that what we call a material object is not itself a substance, but is a system of particulars analogous in their nature to sensations, and in fact often including actual sensations among their number. In this way, the stuff of which physical objects are composed is brought into relation with the stuff of which part, at least, of our mental life is composed. There is, however, a converse task which is equally necessary for our thesis, and that is to show that the stuff of our mental life is devoid of many qualities which it is commonly supposed to have, and is not possessed of any attributes which make it incapable of forming part of the world of matter. In the present lecture I shall begin the arguments for this view. Corresponding to the supposed duality of matter and mind, there are, in orthodox psychology, two ways of knowing what exists. One of these, the way of sensation and external perception, is supposed to furnish data for our knowledge of matter. The other, called introspection, is supposed to furnish data for knowledge of our mental processes. To common sense, this distinction seems clear and easy. When you see a friend coming along the street, you acquire knowledge of an external physical fact. When you realize that you are glad to meet him, you acquire knowledge of a mental fact. Your dreams and memories and thoughts, of which you are often conscious, are mental facts, and the process by which you become aware of them seems to be different from sensation. Kant calls it the inner sense. Sometimes it is spoken of as consciousness of self, but its commonest name in modern English psychology is introspection. It is this supposed method of acquiring knowledge of our mental processes that I wish to analyze and examine in this lecture. I will state at the outset the view which I shall aim at establishing. I believe that the stuff of our mental life as opposed to its relations and structure, consists wholly of sensations and images. Sensations are connected with matter in the way that I tried to explain in Lecture 5, that is, each is a member of a system which is a certain physical object. Images, though they usually have certain characteristics, especially lack of vividness, that distinguish them from sensations, are not invariably so distinguished, and cannot therefore be defined by these characteristics. Images, as opposed to sensations, can only be defined by their different causation. They are caused by association with a sensation, not by a stimulus external to the nervous system, or perhaps one should say external to the brain, where the higher animals are concerned. The occurrence of a sensation or image does not in itself constitute knowledge, but any sensation or image may come to be known if the conditions are suitable. When a sensation, 
like the hearing of a clap of thunder, is normally correlated with closely similar sensations in our neighbors, we regard it as giving knowledge of the external world. Since we regard the whole set of similar sensations as due to a common external cause. But images and bodily sensations are not so correlated. Bodily sensations can be brought into a correlation by physiology and thus take their place ultimately among the sources of knowledge of the physical world. But images cannot be made to fit with the simultaneous sensations and images of others. Apart from their hypothetical causes in the brain, they have a causal connection with physical objects through the fact that they are copies of past sensations. But the physical objects with which they are thus connected are in the past, not in the present. These images remain private in a sense in which sensations are not. A sensation seems to give us knowledge of a present physical object, while an image does not, except when it amounts to a hallucination, and in this case the seeming is deceptive. Thus the whole context of the two occurrences is different, but in themselves they do not differ profoundly, and there is no reason to invoke two different ways of knowing for the one and for the other. Consequently, introspection as a separate kind of knowledge disappears. The criticism of introspection has been in the main the work of American psychologists. I will begin by summarizing an article which seems to me to afford a good specimen of their arguments, namely, The Case Against Introspection, by Donald Dunlap. After a few historical quotations, he comes to two modern defenders of introspection, Stout and James. He quotes from Stout such statements as the following. Psychical states as such become objects only when we attend to them in an introspective way. Otherwise, they are not themselves objects, but only constituents of the process by which objects are recognized. The word recognized in Dunlap's quotation should be cognized. The object itself can never be identified with the present modification of the individual's consciousness by which it is cognized. This is to be true even when we are thinking about modifications of our own consciousness. Such modifications are to be always at least partially distinct from the conscious experience in which we think of them. At this point I wish to interrupt the account of Knight Dunlap's article in order to make some observations on my own account with reference to the above quotations from Stout. In the first place, the conception of psychical states seems to me one which demands analysis of a somewhat destructive character. This analysis I shall give in later lectures as regards cognition. I have already given it as regards desire. In the second place, the conception of objects depends upon a certain view as to cognition, which I believe to be wholly mistaken, namely the view which I discussed in my first lecture in connection with Brentano. In this view, a single cognitive occurrence contains both content and object, the content being essentially mental, while the object is physical, except in introspection and abstract thought. I have already criticized this view and I will not dwell upon it now, beyond saying that the process by which objects are cognized appears to be a very slippery phrase. When we see a table, as common sense would say, the table as a physical object is not the object. 
in the psychological sense of our perception our perception is made up of sensations images and beliefs but the supposed object is something inferential externally related not logically bound up with what is occurring in us this question of the nature of the object also affects the view we take of self-consciousness obviously a conscious experience is different from a physical object therefore it is natural to assume that a thought or perception whose object is a conscious experience must be different from a thought or perception whose object is a physical object but if the relation to the object is inferential and external as i maintain the difference between two thoughts may bear very little relation to the difference between their objects and to speak of the present modification of the individual's consciousness by which an object is cognized is to suggest that the cognition of objects is a far more direct process far more intimately bound up with the objects than i believe it to be all these points will be amplified when we come to the analysis of knowledge but it is necessary briefly to state them now in order to suggest the atmosphere in which our analysis of introspection is to be carried on another point in which stout's remarks seems to me to suggest what i regard as mistakes is his use of consciousness there is a view which is prevalent among psychologists to the effect that one can speak of a conscious experience in a curious dual sense meaning on the one hand an experience which is conscious of something and on the other hand an experience which has some intrinsic nature characteristic of what is called consciousness that is to say a conscious experience is characterized on the one hand by relation to its object and on the other hand by being composed of a certain peculiar stuff the stuff of consciousness and in many authors there is yet a third confusion a conscious experience in this third sense is an experience of which we are conscious all these it seems to me need to be clearly separated to say that one occurrence is conscious of another is to my mind to assert an external and rather remote relation between them i might illustrate it by the relation of uncle and nephew a man becomes an uncle through no effort of his own merely through an occurrence elsewhere similarly when you are said to be conscious of a table the question whether this is really the case cannot be decided by examining only your state of mind it is necessary also to ascertain whether your sensation is having those correlates which past experience causes you to assume and whether the table happens in this case to be a mirage as i explained in my first lecture i do not believe that there is any stuff of consciousness so that there is no intrinsic character by which a conscious experience could be distinguished from any other after these preliminaries we can return to knight dunlap's article his criticism of stout turns on the difficulty of giving any empirical meaning to such notions as the mind or the subject he quotes from stout the sentence the most important drawback is that the mind in watching its own workings must necessarily have its attention divided between two objects and he concludes without question stout is bringing in here illicitly the concept of a single observer and his introspection does not provide for the observation of this observer 
for the process observed and the observer are distinct the objections to any theory which brings in the single observer are considered in lecture one and were acknowledged to be cogent in so far therefore as stout's theory of introspection rests upon this assumption we are compelled to reject it but it is perfectly possible to believe in introspection without supposing that there is a single observer william james theory of introspection which dunlap next examines does not assume a single observer it changed after the publication of his psychology in consequence of his abandoning the dualism of thought and things dunlap summarizes his theory as follows the essential points in james scheme of consciousness are subject object and a knowing of the object by the subject the difference between james scheme and other schemes involving the same terms is that james considers subject and object to be the same thing but at different times in order to satisfy this requirement james supposes a realm of existence which he at first called states of consciousness or thoughts and later pure experience the latter term including both the thoughts and the knowing this scheme with all its magnificent artificiality james held on to until the end simply dropping the term consciousness and the dualism between the thought and an external reality he adds all that james system really amounts to is the acknowledgment that a succession of things are known and that they are known by something this is all any one can claim except for the fact that the things are known together and that the knower for different items is one and the same in this statement to my mind dunlap concedes far more than james did in his later theory i see no reason to suppose that the knower for different items is one and the same and i am convinced that this proposition could not possibly be ascertained except by introspection of the sort that dunlap rejects the first of these points must wait until we come to the analysis of belief the second must be considered now dunlap's view is that there is a dualism of subject and object but that the subject can never become object and therefore there is no awareness of an awareness he says in discussing the view that introspection reveals the occurrence of knowledge there can be no denial of the existence of the thing knowing which is alleged to be known or observed in this sort of introspection the allegation that the knowing is observed is that which may be denied knowing there certainly is known the knowing certainly is not and again i am never aware of an awareness and on the next page it may sound paradoxical to say that one cannot observe the process or relation of observation and yet may be certain that there is such a process but there is really no inconsistency in the saying how do i know that there is awareness by being aware of something there is no meaning in the term awareness which is not expressed in the statement i am aware of a color or what not but the paradox cannot be so lightly disposed of the statement i am aware of a color is assumed by knight dunlap to be known to be true but he does not explain how it comes to be known the argument against him is not conclusive since he may be able to show some valid way of inferring our awareness but he does not suggest any such way 
there is nothing odd in the hypothesis of beings which are aware of objects but not of their own awareness it is indeed highly probable that young children and the higher animals are such beings but such beings cannot make the statement i am aware of a color which we can make we have therefore some knowledge which they lack it is necessary to knight dunlap's position to maintain that this additional knowledge is purely inferential but he makes no attempt to show how the inference is possible it may of course be possible but i cannot see how to my mind the fact which he admits that we all know there is awareness is all but decisive against his theory and in favor of the view that we can be aware of an awareness dunlap asserts to return to james that the real ground for james original belief in introspection was his belief in two sorts of objects namely thoughts and things he suggests that it was merely inconsistency on james part to adhere to introspection after abandoning the dualism of thoughts and things i do not wholly agree with this view but it is difficult to disentangle the difference as to introspection from the difference as to the nature of knowing dunlap suggests that what is called introspection really consists of awareness of images visceral sensations and so on this view in essence seems to me sound but then i hold that knowing itself consists of such constituents suitably related and that in being aware of them we are sometimes being aware of instances of knowing for this reason much as i agree with his view as to what are the objects of which there is awareness i cannot wholly agree with his conclusion as to the impossibility of introspection the behaviorists have challenged introspection even more vigorously than knight dunlap and have gone so far as to deny the existence of images but i think they have confused various things which are very commonly confused and that it is necessary to make several distinctions before we can arrive at what is true and what is false in the criticism of introspection i wish to distinguish three distinct questions any one of which may be meant when we ask whether introspection is a source of knowledge the three questions are as follows one can we observe anything about ourselves which we cannot observe about other people or is everything we can observe public in the sense that another could also observe it if suitably placed two does everything that we can observe obey the laws of physics and form part of the physical world or can we observe certain things that lie outside physics three can we observe anything which differs in its intrinsic nature from the constituents of the physical world or is everything that we can observe composed of elements intrinsically similar to the constituents of what is called matter any one of these three questions may be used to define introspection i should favor introspection in the sense of the first question that is i think that some of the things we observe cannot even theoretically be observed by anyone else the second question tentatively and for the present i should answer in favor of introspection i think that images in the actual condition of science cannot be brought under the causal laws of physics though perhaps ultimately they may be the third question i should answer adversely to introspection i think that 
observation shows us nothing that is not composed of sensations and images and that images differ from sensations in their causal laws not intrinsically i shall deal with the three questions successively one publicity or privacy of what is observed confining ourselves for the moment to sensations we find that there are different degrees of publicity attaching to different sorts of sensations if you feel a toothache when the other people in the room do not you are in no way surprised but if you hear a clap of thunder when they do not you begin to be alarmed as to your mental condition sight and hearing are only the most public of the senses smell only a trifle less so touch again a trifle less since two people can only touch the same spot successively and not simultaneously taste has a sort of semi-publicity since people seem to experience similar taste sensations when they eat similar foods but the publicity is incomplete since two people cannot eat actually the same piece of food but when we pass on to bodily sensations headache toothache hunger thirst the feeling of fatigue and so on we get quite away from publicity into a region where other people can tell us what they feel but we cannot directly observe their feelings as a natural result of this state of affairs it has come to be thought that the public senses give us knowledge of the outer world while the private senses only give us knowledge as to our own bodies as regards privacy all images of whatever sort belong with the sensations which only give knowledge of our own bodies that is each is only observable by one observer this is the reason why images of sight and hearing are more obviously different from sensations of sight and hearing than images of body sensations are from bodily sensations and that is why the argument in favor of images is more conclusive in such cases as sight and hearing than in such cases as inner speech the whole distinction of privacy and publicity however so long as we confine ourselves to sensations is one of degree not of kind no two people there is good empirical reason to think ever have exactly similar sensations related to the same physical object at the same moment on the other hand even the most private sensation has correlations which would theoretically enable another observer to infer it that no sensation is ever completely public results from differences of point of view two people looking at the same table do not get the same sensation because of perspective and the way the light falls they get only correlated sensations two people listening to the same sound do not hear exactly the same thing because one is nearer to the source of the sound than the other one has better hearing than the other and so on thus publicity in sensations consists not in having precisely similar sensations but in having more or less similar sensations correlated according to the ascertainable laws the sensations which strike us as public are those where the correlated sensations are very similar and the correlations are very easy to discover but even the most private sensations have correlations with things that others can observe the dentist does not observe your ache but he can see the cavity which causes it and could guess that you are suffering even if you did not tell him this fact however cannot be used as watson would apparently wish to extrude from science observations which are private to one observer since it is by means of many such observations that correlations are established 
for example, between toothaches and cavities. Privacy, therefore, does not by itself make a datum unnameable to the scientific treatment. On this point, the argument against introspection must be rejected. 2. Does everything observable obey the laws of physics? We come now to the second ground of objection to introspection, namely that its data do not obey the laws of physics. This, though less emphasized, is, I think, an objection which is really more strongly felt than the objection of privacy, and we obtain a definition of introspection more in harmony with usage if we define it as observation of data not subject to physical laws than if we define it by means of privacy. No one would regard a man as introspective because he was conscious of having a stomachache. Opponents of introspection do not mean to deny the obvious fact that we can observe bodily sensations which others cannot observe. For example, Knight Dunlap contends that images are really muscular contractions, and evidently regards our awareness of muscular contractions as not coming under the head of introspection. I think it will be found that the essential characteristic of introspective data, in the sense which now concerns us, has to do with localization. Either they are not localized at all, or they are localized, like visual images, in a place already physically occupied by something which would be inconsistent with them if they were regarded as part of the physical world. If you have a visual image of your friend sitting in a chair which is, in fact, empty, you cannot locate the image in your body because it is visual, nor as a physical phenomenon in the chair because the chair, as a physical object, is empty. Thus it seems to follow that the physical world does not include all that we are aware of, and that images which are introspective data have to be regarded, for the present, as not obeying the laws of physics. This is, I think, one of the chief reasons why an attempt is made to reject them. I shall try to show in Lecture 8 that the purely empirical reasons for accepting images are overwhelming, but we cannot be nearly so certain that they will not ultimately be brought under the laws of physics. Even if this should happen, however, they would still be distinguishable from sensations by their proximate causal laws, as gases remain distinguishable from solids. 3. Can we observe anything intrinsically different from sensations? We come now to our third question concerning introspection. It is commonly thought that by looking within we can observe all sorts of things that are radically different from the constituents of the physical world, for example, thoughts, beliefs, desires, pleasures, pains, and emotions. The difference between mind and matter is increased partly by emphasizing these supposed introspective data, partly by the supposition that matter is composed of atoms or electrons, or whatever units physics may at the moment prefer. As against this latter supposition, I contend that the ultimate constituents of matter are not atoms or electrons, but sensations, and other things similar to sensations, as regards extent and duration. As against the view that introspection reveals a mental world radically different from sensations, I propose to argue that thoughts, beliefs, desires, pleasures, pains, and emotions are all built up out of sensations, and images alone, and that there is reason to think that images do not differ from sensations in their intrinsic character. We thus effect a mutual rapprochement of mind and matter, and reduce the ultimate data of introspection, in our second sense, to images alone, 
On this third view of the meaning of introspection, therefore, our decision is wholly against it. There remain two points to be considered concerning introspection. The first is to show how far it is trustworthy. The second is as to whether, even granting that it reveals no radically different stuff from that revealed by what might be called external perception, it may not reveal different relations, and thus acquire almost as much importance as is traditionally assigned to it. To begin with, the trustworthiness of introspection. It is common among certain schools to regard the knowledge of our own mental processes as incomparably more certain than our knowledge of the external world. This view is to be found in the British philosophy which descends from Hume, and is present somewhat veiled in Kant and his followers. There seems no reason whatever to accept this view. Our spontaneous, unsophisticated beliefs, whether as to ourselves or as to the outer world, are always extremely rash and very liable to error. The acquisition of caution is equally necessary and equally difficult in both directions. Not only are we often unaware of entertaining a belief or desire which exists in us, we are often actually mistaken. The fallibility of introspection as regards what we desire is made evident by psychoanalysis. Its fallibility as to what we know is easily demonstrated. An autobiography, when confronted by a careful editor with documentary evidence, is usually found to be full of obvious, inadvertent errors. Any of us confronted by a forgotten letter written some years ago will be astonished to find how much more foolish our opinions were than we had remembered them as being. And as to the analysis of our mental operations, believing, desiring, willing, or what not, introspection, therefore, though it is one among our sources of knowledge, is not in isolation in any degree more trustworthy than external perception. I come now to our second question. Does introspection give us materials for the knowledge of relations other than those arrived at by reflecting upon external perception? It might be contended that the essence of what is mental consists of relations such as knowing, for example, and that our knowledge concerning these essentially mental relations is entirely derived from introspection. If knowing were an unanalyzable relation, this view would be incontrovertible, since clearly no such relation forms part of the subject matter of physics. But it would seem that knowing is really various relations, all of them complex. Therefore, until they have been analyzed, our present question must remain unanswered. I shall return to it at the end of the present course of lectures. End of Lecture 6 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com